episode 88, No Man's Land. I'm Morgan Shortle, and you're listening to the August 26, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. The United States didn't send soldiers to Europe until World War I had been raging for years, but that didn't stop Americans from volunteering. Women went to Europe as doctors, nurses, ambulance drivers, and clerks. In today's episode, we hear the story behind a nurse's uniform worn by Ethlyn Myers. Her nursing career took her from small-town Kansas to the battlefields of Europe. Did Ethlyn survive the war? If so, did it change her life forever? And later, we'll connect William Allen White to journalist Walter Cronkite, who recently passed away at the age of 92. The most trusted man in America had Kansas ties. How will we connect him to our favorite journalist from Emporia? Will it be through a love of words or a passion for good food? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, No Man's Land. Today I'm talking to Nikayla Zimmerman about a nurse's uniform from World War I. It was worn by Ethlyn Myers. Ethlyn was a small town Kansas girl whose nursing degree took her all the way to the battlefields of Europe. We're going to talk about her experiences in just a little bit, but first, Nikayla, please describe the uniform for us. Well, we have two uniforms. One kind of looks like a suit. It's got a long shin length um, navy blue skirt and a fitted jacket. And this would have been an army issue outdoor uniform that the nurses wore. And the other uniform we have is a white cotton dress and an apron that are both heavily starched. I don't know why you'd <laughs> want to wear them because they look really uncomfortable. But um, Ethelyn probably wore this one when she worked for the U.S. Public Health Service after World War One. And we actually have a lot of items in our collection um, that she used while she was um, serving in World War One. Her sister donated the collection in the 60s. So we've got everything from her uniforms to her dog tag to her gas mask. Ooh. Yeah. Kind of scary. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so we know Ethlyn was a nurse during World War One, but she didn't get drafted, right? That's right. Uh, so how did she end up nursing American soldiers in the French hospital? Well, she started out in Kansas as a teacher, but then later graduated from Christ Hospital in Topeka with a nursing degree in 1914. And after she re- received her degree, she went to Columbus, Kansas, and helped establish a hospital there. So she had a little bit of nursing experience before she went. Um, And at the time, many nurses and women were going to Europe before the United States ever got involved in the war, so they could help out as aides or nurses, secretaries, clerks, ambulance drivers, things like that in foreign offices. And so there were a lot of of American nurses in French hospitals already. But then after the U.S. entered the war, it became really important for there to be enough doctors and nurses abroad to treat our wounded soldiers. So hospitals throughout the country began forming units that they could send to Europe. And it was pretty convenient because if one hospital formed the unit, all the doctors and nurses had worked together before. So they kind of knew each other and they knew, you know, how they worked together. And then once the hospital unit, it was it was overseen by the American Red Cross when they were still not mobilized yet. And then um, after they were mobilized, the Army or the Navy or whichever unit they were serving, they would take over that um, hospital unit. So after the war, after the United States got into the war, um, a hospital in Kansas City did this. They formed a unit um, that was overseen by the American Red Cross, and they started looking for doctors and nurses. So the hospital had, they had enough doctors, and they had quite a few nurses, but they started out looking for nurses only in the Kansas City area. 
And when it came time for them to be mobilized, they didn't have enough nurses. And at that time, they opened it up and said, okay, anybody who's a nurse who has experience that wants to go, sign up because we need the help. So that's when Ethelyn joined the, with the unit. So she um, then went to Kansas City, or she met the unit in New York, and from New York, they went to France. Cool. Um, so all war is really tough, but the First World War was really bad. Why was that? Well, World War One, we know, kind of straddled the line between the old style of fighting, where you had, you know, two units meeting on a line and shooting at each <laughs> other. Um, so it straddled the line of that and new technology. Most of the equipment that we associate with war today was developed around this time. So you have tanks and vehicles being used while some soldiers are still on horseback. And chemical warfare really took off, which is one of the main things we think of when we think of World War I. Um, there were slash and burn policies that were followed by really horrible wet weather, which made everything like a mud pit, which um, resulted in widespread illness like TB and typhoid and trench foot and pneumonia. What is trench foot? Uh, trench foot is a... Uh, uh, it's, I don't know, I can't even describe it. <laughs> it's gross. It's from the wet and cold in the trench. So it's kind of like, I think, I always think of like athlete's foot run amok. <laughs> you know, like you're losing your feet. It's so bad. But you could get different um, different diseases from being just in the cold and wet. Yeah. So it's pretty nasty. And at this time, in terms of medicine, um, it was actually a really good time for medicine because you have all these... Um, these wounded soldiers are trying to figure out how to treat, so they're making great advances in medicine, and they're able to save soldiers who, in the past, would have died from their wounds. So at the same time you have this, you have you now have soldiers who are disabled on city streets in Europe that no one knows what to do with them because um, they've never experienced anything like this before. And moreover, soldiers are suffering from what they then called shell shock, and we know today is post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, modern psychology was in its infancy, and no one knew how to treat such illnesses. Wow. So, yeah, it was. Um, I think it was a lot of things together, but a lot of it was due to the fact that soldiers were surviving and no one knew what to, what do, to with do with them. Hmm. And which we still have some of the same yeah, issues today. That's true, yeah. Um, so we have... A lot more in our collection than just Ethelyn's uniform. We also have some of her letters that she wrote while stationed in France. Um, mm -hmm. According to Ethelyn, what was life like at the hospital? Well, the base hospital that she was with, it was Base Hospital 28, and it was not located directly on the front. So they actually got soldiers after they'd been somewhat stabilized by a unit that was at the front. Um, this doesn't mean that she didn't see her fair share of really disgusting, horrifying things. Um, the hospital started out, it was only supposed to be a 500-bed unit, but by the time they had arrived in France, um, this had been increased to 1,500 beds, and at any given time, they would have more wounded than they had place to put them. So sometimes, like, around 2,000 to 2,500 guys that they were trying to treat. So did they turn people away? I mean, if No, they would just, like, they would find places to stick cots and wow. stretchers, and they'd be in the hallways, and it was packed, and it was, it was a busy place. Um, from her letters, it seems like she had the most sympathy for men who had been through a gassing experience. Um, she said in one of her letters that she would rather have been shot to pieces than to have to suffer gas poisoning. And she also found the spirit of the soldiers remarkable. Um, every day she helped treat men that were cheerful in spite of their suffering and wanted nothing more than to get well so they could go back to duty. So Not go home, but go back to duty. Go back to duty, yeah. And she felt that when she was in France, um, she was being very useful. She kind of hated to leave because she thought that would be the end of her usefulness. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> so what, what did she do after the war? Did she go back to Kansas? 
Well, after the armistice was signed, uh, she stayed in France for a while and transferred to a hospital. She started out in Limoges, France, and then she transferred to a hospital in Bordeaux and continued help with the wounded. Um, in April 1919, she did return to Kansas for a while, but um, soon after the war, the government established the U.S. Public Health Service, which was meant to provide care for the wounded vets. So kind of compensating for that. We don't know what to do with the guys. Yeah. Let's try to provide some care. Okay, so they wanted nurses to serve with this service who had experience with treating the soldiers. They kind of knew what they were getting into already. And um, so Ethelin signed up to help do that. And she started out as a dental assistant in Houston. Oh. Yeah. But in 1923, she returned to Kansas City, and she took the position of chief of personnel at the Kansas City, Missouri, U.S. Veterans Hospitals. And during her time there, she continued her education and took um, intensive training courses in um, treating tuberculosis, which there's a picture on the website of her with her class at the, at the, the training that she took. Yeah. Ethel was fairly young when she died. Uh, did that have anything to do with her work? It may have. Um, in 1925, Ethelyn was transferred to a vet's hospital in California, ironically for treatment for tuberculosis. <laughs> um, and she stayed there for most of the rest of her life. Um, in 1927, we have a letter um, in our library collection that was sent to her sister stating that Ethelyn was very ill and in failing health and it might be a good time for the family to come out. And surprisingly, she lasted until 1931 then. Wow. So, yeah. But then she did, um, she did die of TB, something that she knew how to treat but couldn't survive. Okay. So one last question. Okay. Um, how do you think Ethelyn would feel about women soldiers going into combat? Um, today, more and more American women are in dangerous situations in Iraq and Afghanistan, mm -hmm. but technically they still can't serve in combat units. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like Ethelyn was a very strong and independent woman. Do you think she would be surprised by that? Well, I, th I think she might be surprised that women are an integral part of war efforts, but I don't think she'd be surprised that they aren't allowed to serve in combat units. Um, she lived during the, the first wave of feminism when women, you know, it wasn't like the bra burning sexual yeah. equality. It was more like, hey, we just want to vote and own property, you know? Um, so I think probably she'd be proud that women had, had come far enough to, you know, be able to defend their country alongside men. But um, at the same time, the reason I think um, it wouldn't surprise her to know that they couldn't serve in combat units um, is because nurses at her time also struggled to get um, status. They were not, they, they were kind of paramilitary. They weren't given rank and they weren't given compensation commiserate with their experience. Mm. And it made, it made life really difficult because um, she had to exercise authority over, you know, uh, corpsmen in the hospital who would act out and she had no rank to do that. She couldn't pull rank on anybody, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, it was confusing. They didn't get paid. They oftentimes got overlooked for um, travel or leave or transportation. And so I think, I think she would probably just see that as an extension yeah. of what she herself experienced. Oh, great. Well, thank you, Nikayla. Sure. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy... And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today are Bob Kekheisen. Hello. And Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And today we're connecting White to Walter Cronkite, probably America's most famous broadcast journalist. 
But before we get started, we may have some new listeners wondering who the heck is William Allen White. <laughs> it's been a while. So, yeah. Yeah. We might so, want to explain that. Yeah. So here's the scoop. White was a famous newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, before television came on the scene. You could say he was the Walter Cronkite of his day. Mm, yeah. <laughs> White's columns appeared in newspapers all over the country, and one of them won the Pulitzer Prize. He hobnobbed with presidents and politicians, and all the best writers either knew him or wished they did. So that's why we connect William Allen White to famous people, and also because it's fun. It's, yes, it is. It is. <laughs> now, Bob, you would give us uh, some background on Walter Cronkite? Yeah, sure. Um, although Cronkite wasn't born, nor did he live in Kansas, so you may be wondering why we're doing Walter Cronkite. Um, the most trusted man in America, as he came to be known, had strong ties to Northeast Kansas. His great-grandfather, Edward Fritch, I don't know if that's any relation to Laurel. I think it's spelled differently, our curator, Laurel Fritch, but, uh, or it might be Fritzy, I don't know. I have to ask somebody. <laughs> I, like any, I like Fritzy. Fritzy, Fritzy right? <laughs> sounds like your dog. But uh, anyway, if any Cronkite scholars out there want to call and correct me on that. Anyway, his great-grandfather, Edward Fritz, whatever, was an early settler in Leavenworth, and he got to Kansas in 1858. And his granddaughter, Helen, was born in Leavenworth and later married Walter Cronkite Sr. And so in 1916, she gave birth to Walter Cronkite Jr., the mm. most trusted man in America, in St. <laughs> Joseph, Missouri. And as we all know, St. Joseph's just right across the river mm -hmm. from Kansas. Mm -hmm. You could throw a rock and hit it from there. Mm. Uh, well, at age 19, when Cronkite was visiting family members in Kansas City, he saw an ad reading, Newscasters Wanted, for a new radio station, KCMO. And the rest, as the cliche goes, is history. He got the broadcasting bug and worked a number of radio announcing jobs before he became a United Press correspondent, where he became one of the top American reporters during World War II. And then in 1950, he joined CBS and became their evening news anchor in 1962, a position he held for 19 years. Uh, Cronkite's mother, Helen, is buried in the Mount Muncie Cemetery in Leavenworth. And Cronkite made many trips back to the area to visit uh, family and to visit her gravesite. So he has. Is it is he being buried there as well? Somewhere in Kansas City. Yeah, I think he. Yeah. Yeah. And his wife is buried there, there. so they were bringing him oh, okay. back, back to as well. Yeah. So well, Cronkite. You know, again, he's had these iconic moments as the leading newsman in America, and I think most notably people know him for his coverage of the Kennedy assassination mm -hmm. and his trip to Vietnam following the Tet Offensive, which really kind of turned the tide of public opinion when Cronkite went over there and said, this isn't winnable. We're, we're mired in, you know, uh, 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 I can't remember how he put it. <laughs> stalemate. There we go. My, my mind went stale for a second. And then, you know, he was always a big space buff, and he covered the 69 moon landing and was just ecstatic about that. So, uh, and unfortunately, as we know, Walter Cronkite just passed away July 17th of this year. So he's as close to a Kansan as we can get. <laughs> Without being yeah. William Allen yeah. White. Yes. <laughs> so there's got to be a connection. <laughs> well, thank you, Bob, for that extensive background. <laughs> More than you wanted to know about Walter Cronkite. And Michaela, I believe you have a solution connecting Cronkite to William Allen White. I do, and it's shorter than Bob's description of Cronkite. So. <laughs> well, that's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad he gave us the background, though. Um, so in 1950, Walter Cronkite was recruited by Edward R. Murrow, who we know as a journalist um, famous for covering London during World War II and probably also from the movie Good Night and Good Luck, which was his famous sign-off line. Um, so Edward R. Murrow recruited Walter Cronkite to join CBS News. 
During World War II, while covering the war from England, Murrow fell ill with pneumonia, and William Lindsay White filled in for him for a week on CBS Radio. And as we know, William Lindsay was the son of William Allen White. Wow. So. Very direct. Very short. Yeah. Cool. yeah. <laughs> short and sweet. They're practically buds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, would you issue the challenge for our next episode? Sure. Well, next time we want you to connect William Allen White to Labor Day the most misunderstood of all American holidays. <laughs> uh, Labor Day has been celebrated in the United States since the 1880s, but for the fast, past 50 years or so, we've really forgotten why. So you know, what is Labor Day anyway, and how is it connected to our favorite workaholic, <laughs> William Allen White? <laughs> so if you think you can connect William Allen White to a puzzling national holiday, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcasts with an S. That concludes episode 88, No Man's Land. To see photos of Ethel Meyer's nursing uniform, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcasts. Would you like to see the Cool Things podcast ranked higher on iTunes? Help us out by leaving a comment, or better yet, a five-star rating. Go to the iTunes store, then search for Cool Things. Click on our podcast and throw us some stars. Come back in two weeks when we visit the set of The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Museum director Bob Kuckeisen tells us what this popular 70s sitcom has to do with Kansas. And why does the Kansas Historical Society have Lou Grant's desk? Join us in two weeks to find out. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Real stories.